Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Paul Haywood, the author and columnist, and by Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. I've been trying to put the Qatar World Cup into perspective by speaking to Professor Simon Chadwick. Our conversation will intrigue, inform and probably depress you. But first, France against Argentina, the World Cup final, or to give it its popular title, the Messi final. There's been a lot of lazy, loose talk about an Argentina win being written in the stars. So Paul, as a fully paid up realist, how likely is that to happen? Well, I look at the stars quite often, Mike, and I never see any writing in them. So uh, it's clearly not the case that this is all set up for Messi. At the same time, I think everybody who's enjoyed and admired his artistry over 20 years will hope to see him fill the one gap in his resume. He's a wonderful player. He's a majestic player. And of course, he's been, you know, dragging Argentina almost single-handedly through this tournament. I mean, a fabulous performance in the 3-0 win over Croatia. But it doesn't follow from that, obviously, that France are just going to stand aside and let him get his moment. It is a flawed Argentina team. The bookmakers have France at a shade of odds on. They're the defending champions. They look tremendously streetwise to me in these knockout rounds. And Argentina are up against it. If anybody can stop Messi winning the game on his own, it's probably them. There will be, as I say, an amazing concentration on Messi, Dom. You know, great athletes shape occasions to their own form, if you like. You know, Messi, Michael Jordan, you can go on. What about the power of the personal crusade? Because as Paul said, you know, this is the only thing that's left for him to win. It is a motivational force for him, clearly, but it has been at previous World Cups as well, and it's they've come up short. The French rather knock them out four years ago in that magnificent seven goal game in the in the last 16 and and you know at the time I remember all the talk was being about about Messi back then as well this being his last opportunity potentially to win this trophy and complete the CV the ultimate CV but it will be a driving force for him and it may well be a driving force for his teammates as well because they want to be associated with being part of that in the same way that you know, the 86, uh, the, his Maradona's teammates wanted to be part of that. And you could say the same probably for 1990 as well, and when, you know, a team recovered from losing their first game to reach the, the final, uh, similarly to, to Argentina this time round. It's in there. I, I, I look at it at the final, yeah, there is that romantic element to it. But it is also the ideal final for Qatari sport investments in Qatar. <laughs> you got two of PSG's front line playing in this, you know, one in Kylian Mbappe, who's, who's attempted to win the World Cup for the second time at the age of 23, and the other one seeking to sort of complete the lot, complete the set with the first World Cup at the age of 35. And, and it's, it's ideal for them. They couldn't have written this script any better 
in Qatar. Yeah, again, a lot of talk about greatest of all time. Cross-generational comparisons, Paul, they're understandable, but how relevant are they? Because you know, I, I tend to think that we should just enjoy Messi for, for what he is. What are the criteria he and inevitably Pelé and Maradona should be judged by? Well, the old standard was was always a World Cup win, wasn't it? Our generation thinks of the World Cup as the pinnacle. And, you know, some great players didn't win the World Cup. Johan Cruyff is the obvious example. Uh, most of the, of the household name legends, super elite that we think of, have won World Cups, um, Pelé uh, and Maradona particularly. So if Messi leaves uh, Qatar on Sunday night without the World Cup, it will feel like a it will feel like a big gap in his um, CV, but it will be sort of outweighed in some respects by the the incredible number of, of personal and club honours he's accumulated over the last twenty years. You know he's been he's a seven time World Footballer of the Year, and I think there'll be mitigating circumstances if he doesn't win. So it will feel there'll be a sad note I think if he goes out as a loser, but I don't think it will detract from his reputation because that is really safe in history mainly on the basis less than of all his honors than is just pure talent his mesmerizing talent i was watching him actually in, in that you know when he took on guardiol for that third argentina goal and it was it was electrifying the whole world just couldn't stop watching that little video clip of him destroying the world's best young center half a, a, a little dark thought entered my head which was that you know, 30 years ago, he'd have been cleaned out, upended before he got to the byline to knock the ball across for the goal. Guardiol, the player of 30 years ago, the centre-back of 30 years ago, would have would have hammered him into the ground, you know. And I, I remember feeling quite happy that the game has evolved in that way so that a player like Messi is allowed to display his talent without being, you know, destroyed by thuggery. This is, this is so typical of you, Rocky. This is, this is, <laughs> this is, this is grifting all over again from uh, 2010. <laughs> you better explain oh, that. Yeah, yeah. I, we, we watched Switzerland um, play Spain in the opening group game of 2010 in, in South Africa. There was I, I was absolutely marvelling in how brilliant and robust the Swiss were and how their resilience and loving it, having, you know, been schooled in, in, in supporting a, a club team that, that had to punch above its weight to compete. And Paul was absolutely outraged at the tactics the Swiss used that day. And it's basically shaped him ever since. He's just scarred by it still, even now. <laughs> I'm a bit more realistic now, um, but uh, I'm just glad he was able to complete that run, really, because just anyone who loves football enjoyed that run, didn't they? Oh, certainly, certainly. What about others needing to step up around Messi, Dom? Julian Alvarez. Now, for all City's wealth, that's stellar recruitment, isn't it? Because they basically paid him out of the paid for him out of the loose change from the um, Ferran Torres deal to Barcelona, and sort of eased him in to the, the first team set up at, at City. Obviously, they, they, they've had Haaland's goals, so they haven't needed a, a striker to, to fling in from the outset. But but Alvarez is is, is the future. I mean, he's 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 been magnificent. And he's worked the, as a perfect foil for for Messi at these at these finals. I mean, everybody would have thought that uh, Lautaro Martinez would would be the the obvious number nine in this in this Argentinian team given that how well he's been playing at Inter Milan and indeed he started the competition but after those first few sort of error strewn performances he's made way for Alvarez and Alvarez actually is more selfless there's, there's a he'll do a lot of work for Messi he'll do Messi's running for him but he's also getting into positions where he can convert the, the, the chances that Messi's supplying for him I mean he was his performance in the in the semi-final was was magnificent winning the penalty albeit he probably will, will be annoyed with himself that he didn't convert the opportunity initially and then and then scoring the two goals and the run straight through the center for the second goal and and the tap in from from Messi's twinkling feet which so which so amused and 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 warmed Paul but uh, you know it was it was he has been a revelation and he'll go back to city probably twice the player than he was when he when he left and he he's he's yet another major player in their armoury. Mm, I don't want to sell any more of the players from your team, Brighton, Paul, but Alexis McAllister, he's really impressed me. He has. 
I, I don't think Brighton have ever had a player in a World Cup final before, Mike. I haven't been back through the records, but I would <laughs> I would doubt it. It's a kind of source of pride to Brighton fans. It's also a source of anxiety because... They, you know, they're watching him sort of come of age in international football on this stage alongside Messi. He looks like he belongs in that team. Previously, before even before this World Cup, people would have thought, well, if McAllister gets a go, you know, he'll be happy with that and he'll come back thinking he's he's moved up a grade. But actually, he stepped into a team that's reached the final and looks like a, you know, a starting Argentine player. And, and, and that will increase his value and his luster when he comes back to the Amex. In a couple of weeks. I, I'm allowed to say this, Paul isn't, but Brighton have had a fantastic World Cup. It's been a real mm. showcase for their recruitment. I thought the Ecuadorian players that they, they had were, were magnificent as well and very unlucky to go out of the group stage. And they've had players with, with Japan as well and, 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 and obviously McAllister, who, who has that sort of streetwise, trademark streetwise streak to his his play as well, which 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 again he'll bring back to the Premier League and he'll you know, Brighton going places, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, we had um, David Weir, Brighton's technical director, on last week, and um, you know eight players in the World Cup, Amazing. and they they recruited them for under fifty million pounds, ridiculous, which is like just absurd, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely, it's terrific. Yeah. Paul, you, you informed us and educated us, as is your want, uh, on Twitter uh, yesterday by basically confirming that France have reached their fourth World Cup final since ninety eight. They won it in ninety eight and twenty eighteen and lost on penalties in 2006, to remind everyone. If they retain the title this year, what qualities would that achievement identify and confirm? Well, above all, player development, continuity of player development. You know, that conveyor belt has been online since 98, and it continues to prosper. The French national team, the setup, knows exactly what it's doing and it produces players of an incredible standard. And again, recently I drew this contrast with the Premier League. In the European Cup, which is obviously the measure of, of, of elite club football, started in 1955. One French team, club team, has won the European Cup. It was Marseille in 1993. Um, the Champions League stroke European Cup has been won 14 times by English clubs. So you get this incredible disparity between the strength of the English club game and its continuing attempt, struggle to win another international tournament. And the French system, which which through Clairefontaine and its regional academies, seems to be able to produce by rote these tournament winning starting 11s at international level. And I, I think it's an incredible achievement. This is the age of, of France, the golden age of French football, because to reach four World Cup finals in you know uh, 24 years is an astonishing achievement. Yeah. But you look elsewhere in that team, and so someone like Griezmann, for instance, Dom, you know, here's someone who is an offensive player, hasn't scored in 13 games, yet he's a potential MVP. The the movement that he creates or that he exploits, is that one of the keys to France's victory? Absolutely, you're right. I mean, he he he. He was a, a prolific player. He was, you know, the man that propelled them to the final of the Euros in 2016. But he's 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 almost sunk back into the team now. He's playing in a slightly deeper role in the midfield in a in, in a slightly reshaped, rejigged system from from 2018. They, they've obviously lost some players from that setup, and and Didier Deschamps placed his his trust in in Griezmann's ability not just to create and to to have the vision that we saw. Again, uh, last night in the in the semi final, but but also to be niggly, also to to be industrious, also to to break up play in a, in a way that infuriated England in the quarter final. I mean, the, the the little fouls might have drawn a, a yellow card very early on, but it didn't actually. You know, he just kept he kept breaking up counter attacks and. And he has that ability to read the game. It sort of suits him being in that deeper role because the game is there in front of him, and he can he can dictate the play. I thought he he has been magnificent in this in this tournament. He's he was presented with a, a shirt after the England game. I think it was number twenty eight. His twenty eight assist for his country, which you know assist is a sort of modern metric in terms of uh, you know of plaudits etc. But but he is. France's greatest assist maker and he's supplying France's greatest 
most prolific striker in Olivier Giroud and arguably one of their best ever players in Kylian Mbappe at the moment. So that front three, Thorian Usman and Dembele as well, that front four is mouthwatering and, and will take some stopping from Argentina. Mm. Apologies in advance because this might be quite a trite question, but, but Paul, how good is Kylian Mbappe? Well, he is a he's a kind of a assassin, isn't he? I mean, I, I think I think it's a couple of times at this World Cup, a couple of teams have shown that it is possible to keep him quiet. Not least England. I thought England did a fabulous job on him. Carl Walker, in particular, the plan to stop Mbappe destroying them worked out actually quite well for England. Um, the problem arose in other areas of the pitch, as it turned out, and in the penalty taking. But uh, you know, I don't, I don't I don't think that he's he doesn't have those messy properties of being able to transform a game away from the front line. What he is, is he's a he's a he's a lethal finisher. He's a he's a he's a born goal scorer. But I think he gives you potentially gives you fewer problems than a great number ten will give you. But nonetheless, I think he's actually due sterling performance. And let's not forget how he played in 2018 in the final when he was the absolutely talismanic player for uh, France, as Zidane had been in 1998. Opposing two teams do obsess about him, though. I mean, and England obsessed about him. All the build-up to that game was about how Carl Walker was going to have to shut down Mbappe. And actually, there, there was almost a, a point in the build-up to, to France's opening goal in that game where England thought they'd, they'd snuffed out the threat because they'd stopped Mbappe with the ball and they completely forgot about Chiumeni in the middle who then was completely free to, to score. And you could argue the same thing happened against Morocco. There were four Moroccan players drawn towards Mbappe in the build-up to the opening goal and Theo Hernandez, the left-back, is completely free at the back post to score the opening goal because the ball breaks to him. So in that respect, he is still having a big influence on this tournament and and making opposing teams worry about him. I don't want to leave without mentioning the achievements of Morocco, Paul. You know, we'll hear later about how they've united both the Arab worlds and, and the African continent to a, to a large degree. Did they offer any clues last night as to how to beat France? Not particularly. I think, obviously, you've got to keep all your players fit, which they weren't able to do. And you've got to have a goal threat, which they didn't particularly have. Uh, it was an interesting World Cup because early on in the first half, we, we developed this narrative that the, the old order was crumbling. You know, we saw major wins for Japan and Saudi Arabia. And of course, there was this great uh, procession to the final by Morocco, which which uh, was important, I think, for the sort of sense that of a regional shift. You know, you, suddenly you've got a a team that represented the Arab countries in a in the first Arab World Cup, and that seemed to really catch on across the whole region. In in, in the African dimension, it's, it's worth remembering that they there was a an African World Cup in 2010 in South Africa, so it wasn't. It, that wasn't the first breakthrough, but I think everybody ended up looking at Morocco thinking they'd sort of um, performed with tremendous courage and, and dignity and enthusiasm and nobody's going to forget them in a hurry. Whether it's a breakthrough or not, I'm not so sure because in the end, the old order, countries, money will tend to hold sway, but it was it was certainly enjoyable while it lasted. Mm. Well, Simon Chadwick is one of the foremost interpreters of the politics and the business of modern football. We talked about Qatar and much, much more. Well, Simon, thanks for joining us in what I'm sure has been a very busy World Cup for you. On a broader sense, away from football, how significant do you think this World Cup has been? I think it has been hugely significant right from the very start. And when I talk about the very start, we can go back to, say, 2008, when the Catharys first decided that they wanted to bid for the right to stage the World Cup. Back then, they essentially, rather than bidding to host a football tournament, what they were looking to do was to achieve a whole number of political objectives, geopolitical objectives, and 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 to deliver socio-cultural changes to the country too. Obviously, you, you fast forward to 2010 and it became hugely significant because in essence, it was a, it was the tipping point for FIFA where the old FIFA of Sepp Blatter 
was forced forced in effect to give way to a uh, infantino and a, and, a, and a new wavering uh, fifa but throughout most obviously the period from 2010 to 2012 that's long that's long it doesn't normally yeah, for those people joining world cups for the first time it doesn't normally last this long but of course when you've got this this vacuum of 12 years it allows all manner of issues and controversies to grow into the space and and some of it rightly so and i'm thinking particularly here of issues around migrant workers and and minority group rights but it does seem as though for me what has happened is in addition to being a tipping point and to mix my metaphors it, it's also been a lightning rod for a whole series of issues as well and and we've seen this during the tournament uh, just to pick one illustration, whereas countries from the global north like England and Germany and Denmark, their view of the armband issue is that the armbands have to be rainbow armbands. But of course, the way in which that played out in the global south in places like Qatar and Morocco and elsewhere is, is the armband issue means that you play with Palestine on your armband rather than LGBTQ plus rights. And so I think the tournament has served a number of different purposes in that respect that we've never seen before. But for me, if just to capture this four weeks of the tournament, it feels as though it is almost a, an era-defining moment, not just for football, but I think for the world in general, because the world is, is in, the, in, the, in the middle of, of what many people call a pivot. And, and the pivot is, a, is a, a political and economic pivot where the balance of e economic and political power is shifting, certainly away from Europe. But some people talk about a pivot from the global north to the global south. It's not just about Qatar. We know about Saudi Arabia and its football ambitions. The next FIFA World Cup, which is the men's under-20 tournament next year, is in Indonesia. And and so when you begin to think about well you know what what are the heartlands of football and you know how is it with fake fans and all of these issues you know as I say I think Qatar is really um, the embodiment of much bigger changes that we're now all encountering. So if the the old certainties no longer apply, Simon, I'm thinking there of you know, European South American you know, dominance of of the world game. We are going into as you say a new era. Can you just talk to the phenomenon that we've noticed in this tournament of sort of African Arab unity as expressed through Morocco? For me, you've got to, when you think about football, you inevitably do think, but I think you inevitably have to think initially about Europe because whilst Europeans didn't necessarily invent football, the formal codification of set and set of rules that we play by are European. And so what we have is a governing body that was established by a European and is based in Europe even now. And you've got a system of governance and, and a set of rules underpinning that governance that still is in essence European. And, and so we, we need to acknowledge the European foundations whilst at the same time also realising that there is this global pivot from, from the global north to the global south. And we have, for, a, for instance, uh, money coming from sponsorships. So there are two Qatari sponsorships. There are four Chinese sponsorships. The other sponsorships came from South Korea, from the United States. There was only one European sponsor, Adidas. And so the nature of the game is changing. What I think we, we need to do is to see that as a context for countries in Africa and Asia. And countries in Africa and Asia they have a predisposition towards football. They're just like everyone else. They love football. Mm. But economic and politically, they're growing in power. If you look at economic growth rates over the last decade, most of the, the fastest growing economies in the world over the last 10 years have been African. We've already said you're seeing sponsorships coming from China, from Qatar, from South Korea, rather than from Europe or, or from North America. But the other thing I think as well is, is that you've also got to keep in mind a lot of the players from Africa and Asia aren't, you know, then then they're not playing in the German third division anymore. You know, they're they're playing for Tottenham Hotspur, they're playing for Arsenal, they're playing for Paris Saint-Germain. And and so I think there is the the unity that we've seen is an outcome of 
probably a perception amongst people from Africa and, and from Asia that you know it's somehow that their time has come and that the world is a different place. In that world, this, is, this might seem a bit of a simplistic question. What is the point of FIFA? And in looking across sports, other international governing bodies, you know, they are acting in a more draconian sense. You see what's happened in tennis with the you know, fines levied against Wimbledon. What do they do for their billions? I, I, I think that's a great question, Michael. Um, people sometimes uh, say to me, could you imagine being FIFA president? Could you imagine, Simon, you being FIFA president? I say, absolutely not. It's, it's got to be the most difficult job in the world. And I think that Infantino's somewhat confused attempt just before the World Cup started to try and explain the world in a one-hour speech. That was utterly bizarre. <laughs> yeah. It, it, instead, I actually think that he, he he had some really important points to make that needed to be made, but I don't think he made them particularly well. It's incredibly... We, we live in an incredibly complicated world. And I think the reality is, is, is just to go back to, to one of my earlier answers, is, is FIFA is, you know, in essence, is European in nature. To be European in nature in a globalised world does call into question whether FIFA is fit for purpose. Now, one of the things that we do know is, is that FIFA is contemplating opening an office in New York. And, and for me, this is a belated acknowledgement that the big money in sport, the really big money globally in sport, doesn't come out of Europe anymore. It comes out of, for example, North America and the United States. But you know, my question to to Infantino or to FIFA would be, you know, why is it taking you until now to realise this? But I think clearly, you know, taking those two things together, it's very complex, and the world is changing. You know, FIFA is it fit for purpose? And and one of the scenarios that I can foresee is is if if FIFA doesn't do better, if it doesn't govern more effectively in this globalized world, and if it doesn't address the disparate demands of of people around the world, then alternatives will start to emerge. And and you know you, there are many other sports across the world, you know, in, in boxing and 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 many other sports where if it is perceived by significant stakeholders that the governing body isn't doing its job properly another governing body will emerge you know we see that in esports there's a big battle right now as to who is or what is the world governing body of esports and and so such as the some of your listeners might have heard this phrase multipolar such as the multipolar nature of the world. What we mean by multipolar is, you know, it's not the, the United States in charge anymore. It's not even the United States and China who are in charge alone. You know, there are lots of countries with power and influence. And if these countries that have power and influence, increasing power and influence, don't get what they're looking for, it's not inconceivable. They say, well, sorry, FIFA, we'll go and do our own thing. We'll go and set up our own governing body. So, you know, these are, these are, Testing times, these are challenging times for FIFA, and, and make no mistake, whereas back in the old days, FIFA could have you know, calmed itself or assured itself that it's the global, govern, global governing body of football. Nobody would ever challenge us. Nobody would ever undermine us. We're now in the era when absolutely people will challenge you. Absolutely. Well, and we see that at club level, you know, with this drawn-out Super League yeah, um, yeah. Farago. Yeah. Is that why then, Simon, that, in 2026, we've got 48 teams. You know, Infantino has presumably never heard of the phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Is this part of the political game and the assuaging certain elements to almost go on to FIFA's side? I, I would say that there are two elements to this. I think there's the Infantino element and and, and there's the, the global change element. And the global change element is that there are now more countries in the world with more money, with increasing power and influence, with a, the kind of cash that they can spend big on, on stadiums and you know, buy TV channels and all the rest of it. And, and um, they're saying, well, hey, you know, we want a piece of the action. So one of the ways in which which we'll get a piece of the action is is you know, you, you you enlarge the tournament. You know, again, if you if you go back, you know, to the to the the, the seventies and eighties, there was a you know kind of a view that were, there were relatively few 
teams of a good enough quality to compete in the World Cup. And it's just got since then, it's just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's an acknowledgement you know, of how much our world has changed. But I think the Infantino element, whereas Blatter, I think Blatter governed by turning a blind eye, whereas, whereby, whereas Infantino governs through the power of attraction, particularly financial attraction. And we saw this um, when he worked for UEFA. And you know, Platini was the front man, but the brains behind the outfit was Infantino. And Infantino, when he was at UEFA, his view was, don't upset the apple cart. But what we will do, and again, I'm mixing my metaphors here, is, is you know, I, I, can't, I can't give you a bigger slice of the cake, but I can make the cake bigger. And so by, what you do is you make the cake bigger by more sponsors, bigger TV contracts, more commercial opportunities. And he's doing exactly the same thing again at FIFA. He's trying to keep everybody happy or as many people as possible happy by baking a bigger cake. And so what we are going to see is we're going to see a bigger FIFA, a more commercial FIFA, a FIFA chasing the cash. Because, of course, what he's going to be then able to do is he's going to be able to go to the Europeans and say, you know what, I'll give you more money. And we saw how quickly amongst the European nations concerns about moving to a Winter World Cup disappeared. One, mm. one, once there was a favourable cash settlement, you know, people by and large said, OK, fair enough, and it went quiet. But he's also going into Africa, he's going into Asia, he's going into South America and saying, I will give you more money if you follow me. And so I think the interesting thing about Infantino is, is despite his ramblings, you know, his kind of geopolitical ramblings uh, that he sometimes makes, he's got a real sharp sense of what it takes to win and he knows that to win, you make money, you include as many people as possible and make sure as many of those people get as rich as possible. Mm. Which is what has happened essentially in elite club football. Are we seeing now almost a fight to the death between international football and club football? Again, I think it's a really great question because I found myself at certain times watching the World Cup and thinking, why am I watching? Because I really don't know a lot of these players and the standard of football they're playing is not particularly great. Why don't I just watch the Premier League? And I thought, you know, the Premier League is like watching the World Cup every weekend because you've you've got really high quality, highly paid, you know, the best in the business. You think about the managers, the managers and that's a great competition. The managers of the Premier League against the managers of the World Cup, who wins? And 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 I, it did lead me to think. Well, there are some people in the world for whom consuming the best, whatever that might mean, is far more important than staying loyal to your national team. And you know, certainly, I was I was talking to people. I, I spoke to many people at home during the World Cup from from France, from the Middle East, from parts of Asia. And they were saying well, we were we're less interested in the uh, the World Cup and much more interested in the Premier League because you know it's essentially the Premier League every weekend. So I think you're right. There is a battle for hearts and minds. There's a battle for for fans, and and you know, we 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 hear this term fan engagement, a battle for fan engagement. But I think there's a battle for money too. And you think about the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund, or you think about the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund. You think about somewhere between two and four billion for Chelsea. The reality is, is, is that in terms of the, the battle between club and national team football, England or Britain in particular is at the forefront of one side. And, and so I, I do foresee that potentially there is a fight to the death there because I think increasingly attractiveness and status and success and excitement are a far more compelling proposition than being faithful to your national team. And you can only get so much out of the players who are wanted by both sides of that argument. The physical demands are just getting ridiculous, aren't they? Oh, yeah. So you think about City Football Group and its franchises across the world. You know, there are lots of other franchise networks starting to sprout up. Um, Manchester United has got experience centres in China. You know, Manchester United players can't go to China every week. And, and yet Manchester United is in the business of trying to uh, to engage, keep fans and engage, engaged in China all year round. So, you know, the, 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 the harsh reality is, is that you know, if we were all great at football, we'd all be playing football, but we're not all great at football. It's a very peculiar industry in the sense that you got a very, very small number of, of people with the requisite skills to play at a high level. 
and so that necessitates making some very very difficult choices and and the sharp end of those difficult choices are you know is this battle between club football and, and national team football mm. if we look forward let's say eight years frankly i'd be amazed if in the current climate the saudi bid doesn't succeed if it does what is what is the are we looking at that as a a sort of super Qatari World Cup in terms of the amount of wealth that will be concentrated in that tournament, the figures who will be drawn into it. You know, Lionel Messi is already an ambassador. You know, the smart money, lots of smart money, is on Cristiano Ronaldo ending up his career in, in Saudi. Give me a sense of what you think that World Cup will be like. So you heard it here first. I think the World Cup will go to Saudi Arabia in 2030. That's what I genuinely believe. I've got no inside information, but based upon what I observe and what I hear and what I think is going on, that will happen. So if I explain why that's the case, the first thing is, is, is as your listeners will probably already know, Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, sat next, sat next to Infantino at the starting, uh, the opening match of Qatar World Cup. Bit of a clue. Yeah, uh, he'd already done that at the 2018 World Cup when he sat next to Infantino at the opening of the 2018 World Cup in Russia. At that time in 2018, there were pretty good reports, solid reports that Saudi Arabia was trying to underwrite the relaunch and the rebranding of the, the FIFA Club World Cup. And, and ultimately that didn't come to pass. But what we do know is Infantino and Mohammed bin Salman have got a very, very good relationship with each other. But the other thing to keep in mind is Saudi Arabia is spending a huge amount of money, period, not just on Newcastle United, but generally, period, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars on all manner of different projects. And what Saudi Arabia is trying to do is to position itself as an Afro-Eurasian hub. So with links to Africa, Europe and Asia. So Saudi Arabia wants to is seeing itself as some kind of, you know, it's almost like the centre of the world, a bit like London or New York or you know, Paris or you know, something of this nature. Now, keep in mind that Saudi Arabia is supposedly trying to do this with Egypt and Greece. So you've got the Afro part with Egypt, you've got the Europe part with Greece and the Asia part with, with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is offering to underwrite all the infrastructural preparation. So in other words, Egypt and Greece will get football stadiums and roads and whatever else they need. At the same time, Saudi Arabia will also provide that. But think about it from Infantino's point of view. 2030 is the 100th anniversary. And what Infantino will be able to say is, I didn't just take it to one country, I took it to three continents. And and <laughs> and, and the, the, number, the number of people I hear you know, they say to me, Infantino wants to win a Nobel Peace Prize for uh, for FIFA. And, you know, can you imagine, you know, bringing Europe, Africa and Asia together? Great for those three countries, great for Infantino and FIFA, but also great, too, in terms of finances, because there'll be a lot of money washing around this. And, and this is to your point about Saudi Arabia. The way that I now see uh, Qatar, Qatar is Saudi Arabia light. So with Qatar, there are, there are 300,000 Qataris in the world. There are 35 million Saudi Arabians. This is a country that over decades and decades has accumulated vast wealth and is seeking to realise more wealth by, for example, privatising bits of its state-owned industries. And so we're really talking about a country with immense, immense financial resources with the ability and the intention to pay for a World Cup and very good friends in very high places. And so you heard it here first. Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Greece will win the 2030 bid. Okay, I can see that it's a good thing for Infantino and his flights of fancy. I can see it's a good thing for you know, the ruling classes in Saudi, Middle East. I get all that. And they have the money to make things work for them. What about you and I and the vast majority of people listening to this podcast as a final question what's in it for us well if you're a newcastle united or manchester city fan you know what's in it for you um, um <laughs> so you know that, that that's a that's a simple answer but but that, I, more fundamentally and certainly for somebody like me uh, you know a, a kind of an old geezer like me is is the football as i knew it 
if it hasn't already disappeared, the last remnants of it are kind of circling around the plug hole about to disappear. And what I don't think we've had the debate about enough in Britain, but I think more generally in Europe, is are we happy with this? And if we're not happy with it, what are we going to do about it? And the reason I say this, and, and I'm thinking particularly about the European Union here, because I think the European Union has got a really important role to play, is the European Union let Manchester City be sold without asking any questions, let Paris Saint-Germain be sold without any, without asking any questions. The Chinese bought into Milan. Nobody asked any questions. And so we are now at a point where I think it's not just the fans alone who are going to be able to answer the difficult questions. I think states need to step in. The European Union needs to step in. Of course, in Britain, we had the proposed, uh, or we did have the fan-led review, and that now appears to have been kicked into the long grass, at least for the time being, and, and that's really unfortunate for me. I think the fan-led review was a good idea, badly thought through. I think it's very, it, it was a popularist measure on the part of Boris Johnson, but it was the right move because we're losing our football and we're losing control of ownership. We're losing control of where our teams play. We're losing control of which uh, which markets they're targeting. And yet it seems that we're powerless to do anything about it. And, and, and I think European government, whether it's the European Union or individual governments across Europe, need to step up and have a policy. You know, have a policy for, you know, for addressing this situation and have a strategy for dealing with the situation. Because if we don't, then you know, by 2050, the game will have gone. And on that happy note, thanks very much for all your time and your insight there. I, th I found that fascinating. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Well, Paul, I found that a fascinating, multifaceted and pretty depressing chat, if I'm honest. Do you agree with his view that this has been an era-defining World Cup on many different levels? I do. Uh, I don't think it's possible anymore to talk about Gulf states, for example, joining the party of world football. I think there's a process of annexation going on. Uh, they're not joining the party. They are the party in, in some respects. And as Don mentioned earlier on, this... This final is a World Cup final in, in Qatar that pits Qatar's two most famous employees against each other, Lionel Messi against Kylian Mbappé. That's the way it's being framed. So just on the, on the spectacle level, the entertainment level, it's exactly the final that Qatar would have wanted. And they will take a kind of reflected glory from that. And, you know, when the political ramifications are, are kind of sifted, I think those countries, the nation states in particular, will, will look at Qatar and be emboldened by it. There have been political, obviously, tussles and struggles and controversies, but I think when they, when they sum up, when it's over, they'll say, certainly Saudi Arabia will say, will be emboldened to want to stage the 2030 World Cup as, as you know, joint bidders. And I think countries, a lot of countries around the world will start to feel that the, the, the old grip of Europe, if you like, is weakening and that, that, that power is becoming more diffuse. Mm. I think Simon's point about that multi-pronged World Cup bid centred around Saudi Arabia was really well made. You know, what came across with the conversation was the global perspective that we now, you know, the truly global perspective that we're now obliged to have. Is this a brave new world, Dom? Economically, it may well be going in that way. And, and it was fascinating to hear him talk about the, the global north and global south and, and indeed the, the makeup of the major sponsorship deals around this World Cup with only Adidas as, as one of FIFA's seven partners actually coming from, from Europe, based in Europe. The rest are you know, they're, they're spread around North America, China and the Gulf. Is it, I, 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 it's easy to answer this question after Sunday in some ways, because if France do win, then Europe will have won every single World Cup still since 2002. And that, that doesn't suggest a sea change on the pitch, which I think ultimately is what, what most football fans will look at as to where the power lies. I mean, it's it may not be the case. The economic 
power does lie elsewhere increasingly but you know fifa fifa is there to promote a global game that's meant it's meant to be spreading the wealth around the globe and, and influence around the globe that's the idea of it until a a team from south america or from from the Gulf or from Africa actually wins the World Cup though I think the perception will always be that the old order is there if European teams keep winning the competition mm. but what of FIFA itself Paul you know they have lofty aims and great ambitions but essentially it's a money pot isn't it when you look at FIFA what's the point of it to amplify the question I've made in the interview yeah, it was a good question <clears throat> what's the point of FIFA it appears to think of itself as a purely a, a deal-making factory, a commercial entity. So, you know, let's take this plan to have 16 groups of three teams with the risk of lots of dead rubbers at the end of the group stage and possibly even result manipulation. You know, as I understand it, they're rethinking that now. And Simon explained extremely well that, that, that Infantino's idea there is to is to create this bigger cake and to get you know, the newer or developing countries on his side by promising them greater income. The whole promise is all the time is more money and more income and more spread of wealth, isn't it? But what they were doing there in 2026 and beyond is potentially destroying the competition. So this is the point. I don't see who's defending the spectacle and the competition and the integrity of it and what it means to supporters. And I think you raised the point at the end, Mike, that the risk is that the football fans, the people who sustain the game with their, their love and support, are becoming globalized consumers they have no say in it they just get what they're given and that these power brokers and these nation states make these decisions and move the game around as they see fit and actually reinvent the competitions as they see fit and you have to like it or lump it and that's the people that's the thing that people are chafing against yeah and are we in the uh, i was going to say early stages probably it's been developing for quite some time because of the power of the premier league both commercially and in just attracting the best possible players are we seeing dom going to to use a question that i used in the interview are we seeing this really critical clash between club football and international football i think that's always there i think that's that's always been in existence and it, look it may be heightened around a world cup and it, it may be heightened when fifa are trying to expand the fifa club world cup and meeting resistance from elite European teams who, who don't want that competition expanded. They don't want to have a a larger Club World Cup particularly. And we, we saw that this week. But I think, I mean, look, for even for the average football fan in this country, the, the domestic season, the, the interruptions of the domestic season for international fixtures is, is always a constant inf- source of frustration and 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 that that is club versus international football in practice it happens all the time and it's heightened around a world cup when fifa feel they're at their most powerful infantino feels he's ruling the world and he can do whatever he wants but that'll switch back again to the clubs will have all the power to give it give it next week next week when the premier league resumes all the premier league big six etc will will they'll reclaim all that power and and they'll have the the impetus and the in in the arguments again because people will start obsessing about the Premier League again as of Monday morning. Mm. What about the domestic fallout, Paul? Gareth Southgate is considering his future. The pros are pretty obvious. He's got a young developing team that presumably is primed to win Euro 2024. The cons are equally obvious, the sort of Stone Age mentality of his critics. Which way do you think he'll jump? Well, he's taking quite a long time to think about it, isn't he? Longer than I, I thought he would. If he's not deciding until next year, he's clearly in two minds. My reading of it is that he knows he's done good work. He knows he has an, an exceptional crop of England players to work with. And the one thing managers hate doing is walking away from a, a promising team they've built. They hate walking away from good young players, don't they? So he, he would find that uh, extremely difficult. At the same time, I think the, the negativity around the job really gets to him. Whatever he does seems to invite this sort of fatalistic, hypercritical reaction. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be critical of a, of a quarterfinal exit. There's lots to talk about there, about why England 
went out and whether or not there's a pattern of them not getting over the line in, in big knockout games. I understand all that, but but it's the mood and the tone of some of the discussions, you know, and this is a guy who was who was booed not six months ago and, you know, people were singing, you're getting sacked in the morning at him and his players get booed for taking the knee at Wembley. All that cumulatively, I think, probably gets into the mind of somebody like Southgate, who's a, you know, a very civilised, positive guy, just wants to do good things for the country. So it's obviously eating away at him a bit, but I, I, I just feel, and I certainly hope that when he looks at the team he has and the players he has, he thinks, I've got to give this one more go because I, it's too good to walk away from. Mm. I don't think we should underestimate the importance of the decency that he embodies. But if he does go, Dom, who replaces him? And is it important, because there has been some debate about this issue, that he be replaced by an Englishman? Who replaces him? I think I think the FA's... I think the FA's desperation to keep him is partly partly born of the reality that there is no obvious candidate to replace him. People are talking about Thomas Tuchel and Maurizio Pochettino, but I imagine if either of those two candidates were was offered a an elite club job, they'd probably take that because they both love that sort of day-to-day training thing that they all managers talk about and uh, international coaches don't benefit from. Is it important that... the He'd be an Englishman. Looking, I don't. I don't think he is. It is important, particularly. I'm, I don't have a a major problem if if somebody comes in and buys into what it, the English setup has become. I don't think that's necessarily easy for for somebody from outside the system. And I think that's that's one of the Southgate's big benefits was he he knew the FA and how the FA worked. He'd he'd been in there. He'd, he'd been head of elite youth development. He'd. He knew how things function at the FA, the good and the bad, and that, that has probably helped him and made him a both a safe candidate for the for the FA, but also a, one that, that that could tap into the sort of national mentality as well. But I don't think that's it. Doesn't have to be. I don't, I'm not. I, I don't want to sort of get into all the little England stuff about you have to you have to have an English manager for the English national team because I don't think you do. You just have to have the best candidate that's available and I, I personally think that that's still Gareth Southgate but you know given what happened with the the hungry defeat at Wolves and the sort of fallout which and the poison that has, has, has come with a lot of his decisions I can see why he would be taking some time to consider what he does for the future because mm. the nature of the job Paul you know if you look at it I think there are three managers at the World Cup who've had conspicuous success at club level Enrique, Hansi Flick, and Louis van Gaal. Can you understand maybe a young coach or someone who's you know, developed and matured before our eyes, like a sort of a Brendan Roger type figure, can you actually understand their reticence to get involved in international football? Because it does park you, doesn't it? It does park you. I can understand the reluctance on the England level, although... I've never believed in this myth of the impossible job. It's not an impossible job, not with the players and the resources you have at your disposal. You know, it's certainly a challenge. But yeah, I mean, just to go back very quickly to this idea of this question of whether it should be an English manager, I think it ideally would be an English manager, not because I'm some little Englander, but because I think that the point of international football is to gather the players and the coaches and the fans of country A and put them against the fans, the players and coaches of country B. I don't think there's anything insular about that. I think if you have a coach development system, and that's what St George's partly is, you should be looking to find a coach from within within your own ranks. That's not insularity. France and, I mean, Brazil and Germany have never sent a team to a World Cup with an overseas manager. And that's not a question of, of as I say, bigotry. It's just a question of what international football was designed to be, you know. So I don't think we should be shy about having that debate. I think that Eddie Howe and Graham Potter are the two um, outstanding young English candidates, but neither looks particularly available at the moment. So I can see that it's problematic for the FA. But again, continuity is important because the thing that England have always done is appoint the manager who's the opposite of the person who went before. So if they appoint the opposite of Gareth Southgate, and in many respects, Thomas Tuchel, for example, would be the opposite of Gareth Southgate, then you've blown your continuity out the window again and and you know you're entitled to say well what's the what's the long-term plan if you just keep doing what's convenient at that particular moment well to sum up 
the World Cup. You know, World Cups are milestone moments. You know, some teams grow old overnight. You look at Belgium and Denmark and others. Some flourish. We talked about Morocco's emergent. On an individual or a collective level, who are our winners and losers from this World Cup? Don, can you give starters off with that? You don't have to be that serious. <laughs> I, I, I think that Didier Deschamps, regardless of the result on Sunday, has had a remarkable tournament considering the the players that he lost on the eve of the of the finals to to, to go to Qatar without N'Golo Kanté, without Paul Pogba, who uh, were integral to 2018's success. And then to lose Karim Benzema on the eve of the tournament itself and lose his regular left-back in the first game to a serious injury. Kismo Kempembe as well, President Kempembe. It's the, the number of injuries he's had to contend with to then take that team to the to the final. A young, inexperienced team reliant upon people like Rafael Varane, who hadn't played a game since October the 22nd going into the finals. I think it's, it's remarkable and, and whatever happens, it's, it's sort of the, the coach of the tournament is a real toss up between him and, and Valid Gregragi from Morocco. And the losers, yeah, I agree with you on, on Belgium, a massive, massive disappointment for them. But you could also check in Germany and to a certain extent Spain for their sort of stubborn refusal to change. Um, I'm sure Rocky will be, will be all over them and loving the fact they stuck with their principles. But... Put one in the mixer occasionally. Actually, no, Come I'm on. Not. <laughs> I'm not actually. No, I'm, I think Spain have you know run their course. The, that's the end of the, the the Spanish religion of pointless passing, isn't it? That's for sure. So don't worry, I'm I'm a convert. <laughs> Stefan drifting all the way. <laughs> so Paul, what about you? Winners and losers. Uh, losers. Uh, FIFA for declaring war on a rainbow. I don't think that's. I'll ever forgive them for that. The the Spanish passing obsession, that's gone. I think Germany are in some trouble. That's two consecutive group stages they've gone out in. Something seems to have stalled in the German production system. And I think, uh, obviously, Belgium, too old. They've gone over the edge. Uh, you know, there are lots of teams will be having major rethinks. I think the winners, well, we'll know more on Sunday. I hope Lionel Messi is, is the ultimate winner in this World Cup because he represents talent he represents the human element and that's what you want to see prevail in the end i think england well england can and should come again uh, in the european championships in 18 months time so european championship singular i should say in 18 months time so you know there's a there's a there's a big positive around england but there's some parts of this world cup that have been quite unsavory and i, I don't think we should forget that okay well my winner is a Pretty left-field choice, so bear with me. Hervé Renard is one of those peripatetic coaches who pop up every four years with a different team. Uh, this time, of course, he'll be remembered as the man who beat Argentina. And you can bet Saudi gratitude will be boundless. For good measure, he's a handsome devil. Gucci and Dior contracts are certainly on the horizon. Sad to say, my loser is Arsene Wenger. I loved his erudition, decency and intelligence as a manager. His transformation into an apologist for FIFA is difficult to understand and hard to bear. I honestly fear for his reputation. Simon Chadwick helped explain that world and I thank him for his observations. I'm also grateful to Paul and Dom for using their experience so wisely. Enjoy the football on Sunday, everyone, because the times, they are a-changing. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.